in-stent restenosis procedures can be lengthy and require flexibility in your treatment strategy. With the Philips Elka laser atherectomy catheter, you can easily and safely modify plaque to maximize luminal gain. Laser atherectomy is the only approved atherectomy device for ISR cases. Learn more about Elka and important safety information at philips.com backslash complex PCI. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for July 2019. If you're new to Heart Sounds, then you need to know that this is the place to come for some behind-the-scenes audio that the TCTMD news team uses to pull together our print stories every month. I fill you in on some of our more interesting stories and you get the chance to listen to some snippets from those interviews. Fair warning, some of the audio I have for you this month isn't the best from a sound quality perspective. I think some of the people we've been interviewing have been taking our calls from vacation destinations rather than protected office space, and in one instance the quote comes from a crowded conference hall. So apologies in advance for some of these clips. I think they're still worth a listen. All in all, July has been a relatively quiet one for the TCTMD reporters, most of whom got to stay put this month. Our lone exception was Yael Maxwell, who once again covered the SCCT meeting for us this year in Baltimore. I'll bring you up to speed on some of the other news from the month gone by, but first things first, let's take a look at Yael's coverage from SCCT. Like last year, this year's SCCT conference kicked off with a special symposium on prevention, followed by the main CT programming. In the end, Yael filed stories from Baltimore on everything from calcium scores to chest pain rule-out to prior authorization requirements for PCSK9 inhibitors. She also sat through an entire session devoted to the Scott Hart trial. As you may recall from ESC last year, Scott Hart was the provocative trial that documented a 41% reduction in coronary heart disease death or non-fatal MI over five years if stable chest pain patients had initially been worked up using coronary computed tomography angiography, CTA, as compared with a standard approach, predominantly exercise ECG. Questions about how on earth an imaging test could have such a dramatic impact on death and MI have been a real hallmark of these trial results. Speaking on this point at SCCT was Philip Adamson of Christchurch, New Zealand, who walked the audience through a range of possible explanations for the Scott Hart findings. These include the improved diagnostic accuracy of CT for detecting angina and stratifying risk, the effects of showing CTs to patients and how this impacts adherence, and the impact on physicians for upping their efforts with preventive medications. You'll have to read Yael's full story to get the details, but to whet your appetite, I'll play you a bit of what Scott Hart primary investigator David Newby had to say. You get the sense that Newby of the University of Edinburgh in Scotland has got a fair bit of pushback about this trial. Here he is addressing the skepticism head-on in a formal and measured defense of the trial. But ultimately, we should stop apologizing for increasing revascularization. You found more disease, and the, and the normal rate is lower when you do take to the cat lab. And the proof of the pudding is that beyond the year when you've actually changed your treatment, you revascularize, and subsequent revascularization rates are half that uh, than in the standard care group, because you found the people and you've treated them and they don't then need further treatment downstream. And I'm really looking forward to the 10-year results when hopefully I can prove the CT actually reduces overall long-term revascularates and uh, in invasive angiography.
Caitlin Cox also wrote a story this month looking at chest pain workup, this one a review of one center's experience using CT-derived FFR in patients presenting to emergency rooms with chest pain. Those of you who've been following the rapid advances in this space will know that the idea of a non-invasive, vessel-specific functional test is an exciting concept. The idea is that having information on fractional flow reserve would add greatly to the information already gleaned regarding percent stenosis. One snag with this technology so far has been the need for CT images to be sent off-site for FFR values to be calculated. Writing in Jack Cardiovascular Imaging earlier this month, Kavita Shanayan and colleagues described their experience sending out CT tests for FFR numbers, the decision to do so being up to the treating physician. The study found that patients who present to the emergency department with acute chest pain do appear to benefit from the added information provided by CT-derived fractional flow reserve, with no difference in length of stay, overall cost, or 90-day MACE risk among patients whose results were sent for FFRCT versus those who had CTA alone. The study was not randomized and did not dictate how the results of FFR should be applied, so there's much more work that needs to be done about how using FFRCT in the emergency department for acute chest pain triage might affect management and outcomes. Let me pass the microphone to Shanayan, explaining the rationale for the study to Caitlin, along with what was learned and where to go from here. Our primary goal with this paper was to really see if there is, if it's even feasible. Yeah. And, you know, to be able to use FFRCT in the, in the emergency room setting, uh, what is it, you know, with the issues about the turnaround time mm-hmm. and then the length of stay and then the costs, is, is it even something we should be doing in these ER patients at all? What we found is that, yes, it is feasible and it doesn't come at a higher cost. Because if we, when we compared these patients that had the FFR CT versus those that didn't, the, the costs were the same. Yeah. And this was including the FFR. I think it still leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. We didn't really mandate management based on the FFR CT. Right. So a lot of patients uh, had invasive coronary angiographies and then they had, uh, they ended up having PCIs for unclear reasons that could have been avoided. Yeah. And so what we, we don't know is could over time with more um, you know, acceptance of the technology, would the interventional cardiologist be comfortable not yeah. <laughs> not that patient yeah. to the cath lab yeah. Yeah. <laughs> based right. on CT results, you yeah. know, because we we're so we have this ingrained training in all of us, not just the interventionalists, all of us in cardiology. That when we see a stenosis that's severe, or anywhere close to severe, mm-hmm. we want to do something about it. <laughs> so um, you know, we don't know if that could result in you know really important, significant cost savings, as well as you know obviously convenience for the patients to be able to send them home from the ER without subjecting them to admissions and the risks of procedures and so on. Whenever we've done a story on TCTMD relating to the use of direct-acting oral anticoagulants, known as DOACs or NOACs, that story has typically ended up among our top 10 for the month. July was no exception. 
This time it was an analysis published in JAMA Neurology that delved into data from the U.S. PROSPER cohort to address the use of DOACs in older patients with atrial fibrillation and, specifically, those who'd been discharged from hospital after an acute ischemic stroke. Patients in this analysis had a mean age of 80, representing a group in whom physicians are particularly concerned about bleeding. But as Yang Xian and colleagues report in their paper, stroke survivors who received a DOAC at discharge instead of warfarin had a greater number of days spent at home and out of hospital or a nursing facility in the year after their event. They also had a significantly lower risk of MACE during follow-up. Todd Neal covered this paper for TCTMD and called up Jonathan Pacini of Duke Clinical Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina, for comment. Pacini pointed out that this kind of real-world data is important new information for people worried that the results of clinical trials may not translate well to a real-world population. Have a listen. As you know, there's been a lot of controversy. There was a lot of controversy about these drugs when they first came out. And it seems that at every turn, someone was, you know, first it was, well, the methodology of those pivotal trials. Uh, then it was, oh, well, was the warfarin control as good as it could have been in the, in, the, in the warfarin arm in those studies? And then people were really concerned about, you know, increased risk of GI bleeding. And then everyone was really concerned about there not being an antidote. And yet study after study after study has shown that these medications lead to substantial benefit. And I, you know, I, it, I, I think that most providers, if, if you ask them, if you had a family member with atrial fibrillation required stroke prevention therapy, would you want them to be on warfarin or direct acting oral anticoagulant? You know, I think it's pretty clear that a direct oral anticoagulant is, is a much better therapy. At the TVT meeting last month, I heard a lot of buzz about emerging considerations as TAVR moves into younger and lower-risk patients. Some operators are raising alarm bells about coronary access in patients who received a transcatheter valve but then later develop coronary disease that is trickier to get to in patients with these valves in place. A pilot study published in Circulation CV Interventions this month makes the case for thinking of commissure alignment at the time of valve implantation in order to preserve coronary access. As lead author Gilbert Tang explained to TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon, the prevalence of coronary artery disease in patients with aortic stenosis undergoing TAVR ranges from 40% to 75%. In fact, more than 60% of patients in the intermediate risk trials had coronary disease. There are also differences between the various commercialized valves in terms of their impact on coronary access. The Evolute transcatheter valve devices, Tang noted, have smaller frames than the balloon expandable Sapien XT and Sapien 3 valves. For their study, Tang and colleagues used CT markers to help orient the valve at the time of deployment relative to the inner and outer curves of the aortic root, such that the evolute valves overlap to a much lesser degree with the left main and right coronary arteries. If you're a TAVR person, you'll want to check out Mike's story and Tang's paper to get the specific recommendations. But first, here's Tang making the case for keeping commissure alignment top of mind. The issue is that, unlike surgery, where we actually uh remove the leaflet from the aortic valve and put the new valve in and align them properly. In TAVR, really no one has prepared attention to how the valve aligns rather the native or uh, anatomy. So, because, you know, everyone just wants to get good outcomes. We don't really care about the uh, need to intervene down the road or need to have coronary reactors down the road. But now we know that from the older TAVR studies that the incidence uh, of prevalence of coronary disease is quite high in these TAVR patients, like from 40 up to 80% even in intermediate risk patients, uh, 
and I think in the lowest study, uh, it was almost like 30%. Mm. So these patients sure, need to have PCI or at least diagnostic fat at some point in time in their lifetime. Uh, so as people get younger, then they go a little longer with their vow, they're going to have more coronary disease. I introduced you last month to Marcus Banks, our journalism fellow this summer. Marcus has been trying his hand at a range of stories, including a feature-length piece that I'll come to in a minute. One of his assignments this month was a study looking at the number of Valsartan-related adverse events conveyed to the FDA's reporting system in the wake of the many Valsartan recalls we've seen in the past year. A number of different formulations have been found to contain carcinogenic impurities, prompting investigators to ask, has the rate of neoplasms being reported to authorities gone up? Lo and behold, as Sadir Al-Kindi and Guillermo Oliveira report in Circulation, Cardiovascular Quality and Outcomes, the odds ratio for neoplasm reporting in the month just prior to the first Valsartan recall in June 2018 was 1.8. In July, that number rose to 15.4, and by August it was 18.2. According to the authors, this represents a, quote, abrupt and biologically implausible rise in the number of cancers reported by patients and providers. Marcus reached out to Franz Messerly of the University of Bern in Switzerland, who took a dim view of this spike, noting that it is totally out of keeping with the actual risk associated with these kinds of impurities in the Valsartan drugs. Here's Messerly. The risk is exceedingly low. It corresponds to about one cigarette a day. Um, and, and of course, uh, it's cumulative. You know, the higher the dose, the longer you are exposed to it, uh, the greater is the risk, logically. But then once there is public alarm, obviously word of mouth does spread and, and you know, everybody thinks all of a sudden that, uh, that they have some malignancies, some cancer that it's related to, to Valsartan. And you have to consider that to Valsartan or any other Sartan for that purpose, you have to consider that the Sartans are now one of the most common medications for, for blood pressure. Um, so there are actually virtually millions of people are taking sardines. So clearly the the alarm situation is one. Then then the second reason uh, to be considered is so to speak the shifting of the blame. In other words, you smoke two packs a day for 25 years, have a 50 years pack history of smoking, and you develop lung cancer, but you are on. Now you can say, oh, it must be the Valsartan because you don't want to, you know, it's, it, it, it's much nicer to blame somebody else than yourself, right? I'll finish up with a story that I pulled together a few weeks ago stemming from 10-year follow-up from the MASS-2 trial published in JAMA Internal Medicine. This paper actually got a fair bit of pushback on Twitter and my story, I hope, put some of that in perspective. MASS-2 is a pretty old study, dating from the 1990s and comparing medical therapy, angioplasty, and cabbage in patients with stable multivessel coronary disease. This new analysis out of the INCOR Institute in Sao Paulo, Brazil, zeroed in on the association between stress-induced ischemia and the occurrence of MACE and LV function changes over a 10-year period. This is interesting, of course, because of the anticipation that's been building for the ischemia trial due out this fall. In a nutshell, 10-year follow-up from MASS-2 showed that exercise stress-test-induced myocardial ischemia in patients with multivessel CAD was not predictive of MACE or changes in LV function over time. 
Those findings held true regardless of the type of therapeutic strategy applied in MAS-2 or any of the interventions subsequently implemented over follow-up. The fact that this analysis did not tease out patients who did not get an intervention, and the fact that it did not look longitudinally at changes in inducible ischemia over time, were among the sticking points for critics. But Paulo Rosende, speaking with me from Brazil, pointed out that the aim of this study was to look at the predictive ability of exercise stress tests as a management tool, since that's how they're currently being used. Likewise, Leslie Shaw of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, who is the imaging PI for ischemia, took issue with the fact that test results in MAS-2 were not evaluated by an independent core lab, so that severity is unknown. But the fact that ischemia, as adjudicated in this study, was not predictive remains an important observation, she told me. This is Leslie Shaw. So there's a lot of nuances to image interpretation, but I, I do think it does call into play, you know, that now we've got a lot of data suggesting that ischemia is not going to place a patient at risk. So is it just more correlating with symptoms and not really changing the overall pathogenesis of atherosclerosis, you know what I mean? And it does kind of call into play kind of this whole orientation towards ischemia-guided management. We certainly know from the clinical trials that intervention is not going to improve outcomes for courage and very 2D. And of course, that's why ischemia will you know, be looking only at moderate to severe ischemia. But this is just one other piece of that, even though the data is now old. Um, if anything, because the patients were entered in a different era where there's less intensive management. The fact that it's not significant is more important to me because nowadays, you know, patients are coming in with statins, you know, they're already treated, and so their event rates and the prevalence of ischemia is quite low. Yeah, okay. It does point to waiting for the ischemia trial, right? That is all for the July 2019 edition of Heart Sounds. Things will start heating up again for us meeting-wise with ESC looming at the end of August and TCT shortly thereafter. We'll also bring you a feature story that Marcus has been toiling away on throughout his fellowship, looking at the potential and pitfalls of consumer, wearable devices, and the heart. I'll sit down with Marcus to tell you more about that for the August podcast, which will otherwise be guest-hosted by Caitlin Cox while I'm on the ground in Paris for ESC. I told you last month about the new TCTMD app, and I really hope you've checked it out. Download it from the App Store, and if you already have the old app, you'll need to download the update. Seriously, this is a way better way to develop neck pain and myopia than scrolling Instagram or Twitter on the sidelines of your daughter's soccer match. Although better yet, watch the soccer match. Check out the app when you're trying to avoid talking to people while queuing in the hospital cafeteria. If you voted for us in the People's Choice Podcast Awards this month, thank you. True, it's a long shot. There's a lot of great medical podcasts out there. But hey, you never know. I'm here for your feedback on Heart Sounds or on TCTMD. And I'm also eager to hear your tips about presentations or topics at the upcoming ESC and TCT meetings. Find me via my bio at TCTMD or on Twitter as Shelley Wood too. Thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. 